like to invite you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 2. We are taking some time over the Christmas time of year to focus our hearts on the birth of Christ. And so we'll take a break from our study of the book of Romans, and we're going to take some time to look in Luke chapter 2. Christmas is here. I'm sure like us, you're busy getting ready for that. You're buying presents. You're getting the parties scheduled, you're decorating your house, and what a great time of year it truly is. There's something fun, there's something exciting, there's something encouraging, there's something joyful about this time of year and all the excitement and the buzz that comes with Christmas time. But for us as believers, obviously we know it's infinitely more important than all of that. And what is far greater than all of the holiday trappings that we have is the fact that Christ has been born, and we focus on that, and we spend some time this time of year meditating on that and directing our messages to that because we want to make our hearts sing these truths, and we truly want to have our hearts enthralled with this uh, reality. And so to help us kind of appreciate this this time of year, I want to take the next two or three weeks to go through Uh, The next section in our study of the gospel accounts of the birth of Christ. Now, you've been with us for years. You'll know that we're taking time each year to work through another gospel account related to the birth of Christ. We've been at this for 11 years, and so we've got more to do. You've got to keep coming back as there's more to go through. So we've worked through the first couple chapters of Matthew. We've worked through the first chapter of John, and we've spent the last few years working through Luke chapter 1. We've completed that part of the gospel accounts, and this morning I would like to take us to Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. Without a doubt, this is one of the most familiar texts in the Scriptures. This is, hands down, one of the most beloved and familiar texts of Scripture because it tells us specifically about the actual birth of Jesus Christ. I remember memorizing this text as a young person. Perhaps you've memorized it as well and could quote it from memory. This is one of those passages that believers know well, they love it well, because it speaks to the actual events surrounding the coming and the birth of Jesus Christ. It is a simple account. It is a straightforward account. It is an unembellished and uncluttered account of the events surrounding His birth. It is simple, and yet it is profound at the same time. There is a simplicity that comes with these seven verses, and at the same time, a profundity about what is stated here. Please follow along as I read Luke 2, verses 1 to 7. Now, it came about in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all were proceeding to register for the census, everyone to his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. And it came about that while they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. Those seven verses describe for us, in simple terms, the most monumental reality that has taken place in human history. And despite its simplicity, behind all of the scenes there is the sovereign hand of God working to bring about His purposes on His timetable for His glory. And I want to show you this morning the tremendous evidence of God's work in all of these accounts to bring about 
His Son. Remember, as we just read a few moments ago from Luke chapter 1, that an angel came to Mary and announced to her that she would conceive a child, that she in her youthfulness would be given the privilege and the joy of giving birth to the Savior. And you can imagine the shock that came to this young woman's heart as the angel visited her. This was every Jewish girl's dream, to give birth to the Messiah. And every Jewish girl throughout Israel history was hoping that they might be the one, the mother of Christ, the Messiah. And so Mary undoubtedly was was shocked and overwhelmed when the angel came to her and told her that she would be the one who would give birth to the Messiah. Naturally, she wondered how this would take place since she was a virgin, and although Joseph was betrothed to her, they had not yet been married. And the angel came to her in Luke 1, it says, and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child will be called the Son of God. This would be nothing short of a miraculous conception. She was understandably overwhelmed at this news. If you look back in chapter 1, starting in verse 46, her, her soul, her heart began to pour out her love and affection for Christ and for the Lord, that he, she says, my soul exalts the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior, for he has had regard for the humble state of his bond slave. And behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed, for the mighty one has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Her heart was filled with gladness and joy. I wonder what it would have been like. She was 13 or 14 years old at this point. Joseph was no more than 14 or 15. And for a moment, I want you to just kind of think about what it would have been like for this young Jewish couple to over the next nine months after they've received this news, what it would have been like for them to ponder this reality. What it would have been like for this young, godly couple, what their conversations would have been like, what they would have talked about, how they would have uh, considered this topic, would they have prayed about it, would they have, have pondered and talked about the fact that they would be parents for the first time, but not just any parents, they would be the parents of the Messiah. And I wonder if during those nine months, this young couple studied the Old Testament, maybe searching for clues to try and figure out a little bit of what it was going to be like to be mom and dad to the Messiah. Well, nine months came and went. And as we approach Luke chapter 2, we find out that the day came finally for Mary to give birth to Christ. There's something that needed to happen, though. Mary and Joseph lived in Nazareth, in Galilee. And the Old Testament prophets were very clear that the Messiah had to be born in Bethlehem, in a village a good 80, maybe even 90 miles away from Nazareth. And so taking place in these times were some circumstances that God needed to intervene in order to bring His Son into the world at exactly the right moment and exactly the right location. And what you see in Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 7 is the sovereign hand of God stirring in the course of world events to bring about the birth of Jesus Christ. It is truly staggering. 
It is truly amazing that behind the simple discussion and description of the birth of Christ in these verses is the hand of God orchestrating all of these events in order to bring Mary and Joseph from Nazareth down to Bethlehem in order for Christ to be born at exactly the right moment in exact fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. God worked in mighty and amazing ways to make sure that this occurred exactly as He planned it. I want to show you this, and I hope that going through this may help declutter your Christmas a little bit, that it may help you sort through all of the the materialism and all of the distractions and all of the things that are erected around Christmas that have a way of, of pulling our hearts away. I pray and hope that this text will help you think through that, and so we can have the true meaning of Christmas imprinted upon our hearts. I want to show you from this text three phases of the miraculous birth of Jesus Christ. Three phases that are going to flow from our text on the birth of Jesus Christ. The first one, number one, is we see the census decree by Caesar. The census decree by Caesar. Now, you need to put on your history hats for a little while this morning. If you don't like history, um, I'm sorry, but you're going to have to imbibe a little history for a little while. Because I think as you understand what's taking place here, It is so spectacular and fascinating to see what God was doing in human history to bring this about. And so I want to introduce you to some of these people that were involved instrumentally in bringing this about without them even knowing about it. Verses 1 to 3 say, Now in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria and everyone was on his way to register for the census each to his own city. As we begin reading this account, we learn that there is a census that is being required by the Caesar, the emperor of Rome. And we know from human history that a Caesar would require this for a couple of reasons. One was to number the men who were Roman citizens under him so he would have an awareness and an understanding of those who were eligible for military service. And then the other reason to number the people was to make sure that they had an accurate account of who they could tax. And this counting, this registrar, became then a a list by which Rome would ensure that its citizens would pay their taxes. So when Rome issued a decree to be registered, they wanted the people to register their names, their occupations, their property holdings, the number of dependents within them, kind of like what the IRS does for us today as we file our taxes each year. This was in a practice that was done every 14 years, and we can go back in human history and see exactly when those events took place. Every 14 years, Rome would issue another decree for a census, and we learned that this census was one that was issued by Caesar Augustus. Now, before we note that, look at the first part of verse 1. It says, it came about in those days. In what days are we talking about? We're talking about the days surrounding the birth of Jesus Christ. The days and the weeks and the months that led up to the actual arrival of Christ on this earth. Hold your finger here in chapter 2 and go back to chapter 1, verse 5, because we get a little clue as to what days we're specifically talking about. Verse, one, or verse 5 of chapter 1, Luke writes, "...in the days of Herod, king of Judah." 
That's, that's the days that we're talking about, the days when, when Herod was king over Israel, over Judea, when Herod the Great was ruling under Rome's power over Palestine, over Israel. He was, as he thought, the king of the Jews. He was not a Jew himself. He was an Idumean. He was a descendant of Esau, not Jacob. And so here's an Idumean on the throne, essentially, in Judea, exercising Rome's rule over this region. He is known to us as Herod the Great. He reigned from 37 B.C. to 4 B.C. When we know he died, he died on April 4, 4 B.C. This was the man who ordered the slaughter of all the babies around Bethlehem when he learned about the arrival of the true King of Kings, Jesus Christ. So it's in the days of Herod This king, Herod the Great, Herod the First, he was still alive when this census was ordered that Luke refers to here in Luke chapter 2. It says in verse 1 that it came about in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. That doesn't mean every single person who lived on the earth. That means the Roman citizens, the the region of, of Rome's empire. It was those people that Caesar required to register as a part of this census. So this was a census for the residents of the Roman Empire. We meet a man in this verse called Caesar Augustus. I want to tell you a little bit about this man. He's fascinating. Caesar Augustus is not actually his name. It's a title. The word Caesar is another name for king or another name for emperor or ruler. And so that's what a Caesar was. He was a king. That's not a name. That is a a title. And he's given an adjective to go along with that. He is Caesar Augustus. That is a term describing who he was. It is a title referring to his kingship. And the word August means honor or reverence or someone who's highly esteemed. And so the title, Caesar Augustus, actually means the revered king, the honored king, the highly esteemed ruler. And so this is what the title, Caesar Augustus, refers to. Now let me tell you a little bit about him. His actual name, his given name, is Gaius Octavius. Gaius Octavius. And he became known simply as Octavian. He was born in 63 B.C. He ascended to the throne of Rome in 27 B.C., and he ruled all the way until 14 A.D., a period of 41 years. And actually, he probably ruled a little bit before that. There was a kind of a, a trio of kings, which I'll tell you about in just a moment. So his kingship actually probably lasted close to 45 years. And so this is Gaius Octavius or Octavian. Now, you'll find it very interesting to know that he was the grandnephew of Julius Caesar. Have you heard that name before? Julius Caesar was Octavius's granduncle. Now, let me explain this to you. Julius Caesar had a sister by the name of Julia, and she had a daughter named Attia, and Attia had a son named Gaius Octavius. So Gaius Octavius' grandmother was Julia, who was the sister of Julius Caesar. Are you still tracking with me? Okay. So you see the family connections. And you can see that this man was born into royal nobility. Octavius was showered with gifts by Julius Caesar. For some reason, Julius Caesar took a very strong liking to this young man, 
showered him with gifts, kind of uh, adopted him into his family. Actually, in his last will and testament, Julius Caesar wrote that he wanted Octavius to be adopted as his son and become the heir of his throne. And that actually happened. In 44 BC, Julius Caesar was murdered. He was assassinated by some of the fellow uh, citizens or some of the leaders in Rome, actually, and he was murdered by Brutus and his entourage of senators. They stabbed him, and he died in 44 B.C. And that's really what set Octavian on the way to becoming emperor over the Roman Empire. He changed his name at that point to Gaius Julius Caesar in honor of his granduncle Julius Caesar. Some other very interesting things. Octavian... Now, Gaius, Julius Caesar, had a sister, and his sister married a man by the name of Mark Antony. Heard that name before? And so, for a while, they were in a relationship, they were married, and there were three men who comprised the emperorship of Rome. It was Octavius and Mark Antony and a third man by the name of Lepidus, These three men, for a short time, shared the the ownership or the emperorship of the nation of of Rome, the empire of Rome. After a while, Lepidus fell off, and so it was just Octavius and Mark Antony. And that worked well for a little while until something happened that made those two men split. Here's what happened. Mark Antony uh, was married, as I said, to Octavius' sister. Eventually, he was infatuated and taken captive by another woman, the queen of Egypt, by the name of Cleopatra. And so he was seduced by Cleopatra, which caused him then to leave his first wife, Octavian's sister, and that didn't sit very well with Octavius. And so he, being livid over the fact that Mark Antony would do this to his sister, went to war against Mark Antony and his forces down in Egypt, he sent his navy, and there was a big naval battle that occurred in Actium in 31 BC, and Octavius successfully defeated Mark Antony and his troops there at that battle. It was a short time later when Mark Antony and Cleopatra committed suicide. And so now Octavius is all by himself as the ruler, as the emperor of the Roman Empire. It took place in around 27 BC when he erected himself as the final and sole emperor and ruler over the nation of Rome. It was that same year that the Roman Senate conferred upon him the name Caesar Augustus. It was that title that was given to him at the beginning of his sole emperorship over the Roman Empire. And so here's this man, now Caesar Augustus, Gaius Octavius, Gaius Julius Caesar, who is now on the throne of Rome. He was a wise administrator. He was a great military leader, as evidenced by his victory over Mark Antony. He was a great builder of roads. He was the man who built all the great roads and transportation vehicles within the Roman Empire. And so one of the reasons the gospel spread so rapidly throughout Greek and the Roman Empire is because of his efforts to build this transportation system. He was also the one who ushered in what is now known as Pax Romana. You've heard of that before, Roman peace. And it was under his rulership that the Roman Empire endured and enjoyed, rather, a season of great peace in their land. He was a good ruler, 
for the most part, although he was very ruthless at the beginning of his rule, eventually he mellowed out a little bit and he ushered in a season of peace and was a very benevolent ruler, eventually known as the father of his country. He was not a follower of God, he was not a Christian, but of all the emperors that ruled Rome, he was one of the best and one of the best leaders that they ever knew. It was this man who issued this decree. This decree came by Caesar Augustus. Now look at verse 2. Let me give you a little bit more history because I think it helps understand us understand what's taking place here. Verse 2, it says, this census, this was the first census that was taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. Luke adds here another historical note to help us realize when this actually took place. And from history, we know that there were censuses that were taken by Rome every 14 years. And we can go back, all the way back to 230 AD, and we can trace every 14 years back all the way to when these first censuses were issued by the Roman government. So we know by history that there was a census in 230, and then back to 216, and then back to 202 AD, and then 188 AD, all the way down to 20 AD, all the way down to 6 A.D., and we know that during the census given in 6 A.D., there was a man who was governor of Syria by the name of Quirinius. It's the man referenced here. We know that he ruled Syria from 6 to 9 A.D. Here's the problem. We know from human history that it's not possible for Christ to have been born in 6 A.D. because all the time frame and all of the things that take place in the rest of his life don't fit with a birth in 6 A.D. So we have to think, is there another census that was ordered by Caesar that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria? And we believe that there was. If you go back six years from 6 A.D., you go back 14 years, you come to 8 B.C., We know that there was a census taken in 8 B.C. We're not quite sure because we don't have a record of Quirinius being governor in 8 B.C. However, in 1764, there was a fragment of stone that was found that described uh, a census that was given by Caesar Augustus. And at that time, uh, there was a governor of Syria who was on the throne in his governorship, and all of the descriptions fit with this man being Quirinius. And so we believe that Quirinius was governor twice of Syria. First, as a military governor, starting in 12 BC, all the way to when he was commander-in-chief, all the way to 9 AD. And so is Luke right? He's exactly right. There were two censuses given while Quirinius was governor of Syria, one in 6 AD, which is too late for the birth of Christ, and one in 8 B.C., which fits close to the time frame of the birth of Jesus Christ. But there's another problem, and the problem is this. Christ couldn't have been born in 8 B.C. That was too early for all the other timing to fit with his life. And so we have a problem to figure out how is it that Christ could have been born in after 8 B.C., and how could that have fit with the decree given by Caesar Augustus in 8 B.C.? Well, here's what we think happened. The Romans issued this decree to take a census in order that they could tax the people of Israel. And if you know anything about Jewish history, they hated the tax. 
They despised Rome for making them pay taxes. They thought it was completely illegitimate for Rome, and they thought they had no right for Rome to impose this tax upon them. They hated it. They despised it. They even despised those tax collectors in their nation who worked on behalf of Rome to collect the tax, men like Matthew and Zacchaeus. They hated it. And Herod, who was king over Palestine at this time, knew that if he immediately imposed the census upon his people, there would be a price to pay. It would not go well over well with them. And so, most likely, Herod sought permission from Caesar Augustus to delay the census in order to prepare his people and avert a potential riot that could have resulted from it. We believe that's what happened. Caesar Augustus most likely allowed them to postpone this census in order for Herod to prepare his people, but he didn't say that they could do away with it. Caesar most likely did not cancel this. He still insisted on it. And so a time came when they had to go do the census. And we believe, listen, that the time that Caesar actually finally said, you're going to pay the taxes now by giving heed to the census was two to four years after the initial decree in 8 B.C., which puts it between 6 and 4 B.C., which fits exactly when Jesus Christ was born. We know he had to have been born before 4 B.C. because Herod the Great died, as I said, on April 4, 4 B.C., and so in order for Christ to have been born during his reign, because remember he ordered the slaughter of all the babies after Christ's birth, in order for him to still be alive, Christ had to have been born prior to 4 B.C. And so this delay of the census ordered by Caesar Augustus, a delay of two to four years, would have put the birth of Christ immediately between 6 and 4 B.C., which is when all scholars believe that Christ was born. Y'all are scratching your heads. And you're saying, wait a minute, wasn't he born at zero? And don't we mark our calendars? B.C., isn't that mean before Christ and Anno Domini, the year of the Lord after? Yes, that's what it means, but it wasn't correct. Our modern calendars didn't begin until 525 A.D. They were put together by a monk by the name of Dionysius, and unfortunately Dionysius got it wrong. He missed it by at least four years, potentially six years. So Christ we believe, was actually born between 4 and 6 B.C., at the time when Quirinius was governor of Syria, at the time when Herod was king over Judea, at the time when Caesar Augustus issued a decree in 8 B.C., which was then followed through two to four years later. And so because of that, verse 3 says, And all were proceeding to register for the census, everyone to his own city. Have you ever wondered... Why Joseph and Mary had to go to Bethlehem and they couldn't stay in Nazareth? You ever thought about that? Rome would have had no problem with them staying in Nazareth. Rome didn't care whether they were uh, registered for the census in Galilee, in Nazareth, or whether they were registered for the census in Bethlehem. Rome didn't care. All they cared was they wanted an accurate accounting of the number of people in their territory, and they didn't care where the registration actually took place, but the Jews did. The Jews were fastidious about their records, and they kept careful and detailed records of all the family histories. And so, although it didn't matter to Rome, it mattered to the Jews, and the Jews were the ones who required their people to register in the home of their ancestry. They were fastidious. 
keepers of these records. In fact, you remember that in 70 AD, all of the records were destroyed when Rome came and sacked Jerusalem and destroyed them. So it was the Jews who required their people to register for the census in their ancestral homes. And so this is why Mary and Joseph have to travel from Nazareth all the way down to their home in Bethlehem, their ancestral home where their people were from, and that's why the trip had to occur from Nazareth to Bethlehem. Now, I go through all that. If you don't enjoy history, let me just tell you why you need to go through that. Because I want you to understand that God is sovereignly always working through human history to accomplish His purposes, and Caesar had no idea about the birth of Christ. And he didn't even care that there was a prophecy that Christ had to have been born in Bethlehem. And Quirinius was oblivious to the fact that Christ was going to be born at this time. And Herod wanted to eradicate him. They weren't concerned about these details. But God was. And God was the one who was sovereignly orchestrating every one of these events in order to bring about the birth of his son at exactly the right time and exactly the right location to fit his plan perfectly. That's the first phase, the census decree by Caesar. Let me take you to number two. There's a second one you need to understand. It's the prophetic journey to Bethlehem. So now we move out from what was taking place on the world stage, and we move in a little closer to what actually was taking place in the life of Mary and Joseph. And so we move to this prophetic journey to Bethlehem, which is the next section of Scripture that we see in verses 4 and 5. Now let me remind you, that it was Micah, the prophet, who was the one who issued the prophecy that Christ had to have been born in Bethlehem. Let me read it for you just so you're familiar with this. Micah chapter 5, verse 2 says this, But as for you, Bethlehem, Ephratah, too little to be among the clans of Judea, for from you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity." 700 years before Christ was born, Micah issued a prophecy that the Messiah would come from Bethlehem. And so we see God working to exactly bring about that prophecy as recorded in the Old Testament. Look at verse 4. Luke chapter 2, verse 4 says, And Jesus, or I'm sorry, Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, in order, uh, because he was of the house and the family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. It says they went up to Bethlehem. Now, if you look at a map of Israel, Bethlehem is up here in the northern regions in Galilee. I'm sorry, Nazareth is up here in the northern regions. And down in the southern regions of Israel and Judea is the city of Bethlehem, down by Jerusalem. So if you look at a map, it's actually down. But Luke says they went up. And the reason for this is because the terrain from Nazareth to Bethlehem required them to go up. And so the sea level, or the level rather, of Nazareth is about 1,200 feet above sea level, and the altitude of Bethlehem is about 2,500 feet above sea level, 1,300, 1,400 feet higher. And so as you traveled from Nazareth all the way to Bethlehem, you actually went up in altitude as you gained elevation. And so this is the reason that Luke says that they went up from Nazareth to Bethlehem. And the reason they had to do this 
it says in verse 4, was because Joseph was of the house and the family of David. We know that Bethlehem was the city of David. We know that this is where David was raised, the great king of Israel, the greatest king Israel ever knew, save Christ. He was born in Bethlehem, David was. It says in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 1, that Jesse, his father, was a Bethlehemite. And so we know that Jesse raised his family and all of his children, including David, in the region of Bethlehem. It's a small village, five miles to the south of Jerusalem. Because Joseph was in the line of David as well, he had to go to Bethlehem to be registered. That was his ancestral home. Now notice in verse 5, it says that he took Mary with him. In order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. Now, we don't believe that Mary had to make this trip. It was the head of the home that was required to register his family for the home. And so only Joseph probably was the one who needed to go. And yet it tells us here that Mary went with him. Think why. Why did Mary make the trip with Joseph all the way to Bethlehem? I think there's some reasons. I think Joseph, being a godly man, understood that his wife would be subject to ridicule. She was most likely scorned because she was pregnant outside of marriage. And so Joseph, being a godly man, a a godly future husband, wanted to protect her from some of that scorn and protect her from some of the embarrassment that, that was associated with her birth or her conception, rather. I think there's another reason. I think Joseph knew that if he went by himself, he would miss the birth of his son. She was close to giving birth. And Joseph knew if he made this journey all by himself, he would miss his son's birth. And those of you who are dads, you understand that you want to be there when your kids are born, especially your first child. You want to be there when they, when they come into the world. You want to welcome them into the world. And that was the case for Joseph as well. This was his first child. And on top of that, this was God in human flesh. And don't you imagine that Joseph and Mary, for all these nine months, have talked and considered and pondered what it would be like to give birth to the Son of God. And I have to imagine that Joseph knew he had to be there. He had to be the one to welcome the Messiah into the world. He had to be the one to to wrap this little baby up and hold him in his arms. He had to be the one to be there with his future wife to welcome this little child into this world. Joseph wasn't going to miss this. Even if it meant an 80-mile journey uphill through the mountainous terrain, He was not going to miss this. I also wonder, did they know the Messiah had to have been born in Bethlehem? I kind of think they did. I think that they were godly Jewish young people. I think they understood the Old Testament history. I think they understood the prophecies from the Old Testament scriptures. And I think that perhaps, maybe, Mary and Joseph understood that their child had to be born in Bethlehem. And so for all of those reasons, we see Mary and Joseph on their way from Nazareth to Bethlehem. It's 
really staggering if you think about it. Two nondescript teenagers from an obscure village in Nazareth, making their way along a mountainous road to another nondescript little village. I wonder what they talked about. I wonder where they stayed. It was at least a four-day journey. I wonder where they stayed. I wonder who they talked to on the way. I wonder if Joseph held Mary's hand as they made their way along that treacherous journey all by themselves, heading from one obscure village to another, the world totally oblivious to the fact that she was carrying the most precious cargo in the world. Number three, the humble arrival of Christ. We move from the world stage down to what God was doing in the lives of Mary and Joseph, all the way down to the time when Christ himself was born. Verses 6 and 7, while they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Two very simple verses. Not a lot of detail, not a lot of embellishment, just a simple, straightforward account of the fact that Christ was born in Bethlehem. Notice the verse 6 as it begins, and it came about that while they were there. Where? They were in Bethlehem. Where were they in Bethlehem? Well, we don't exactly know. Verse 7 gives us a little clue. The end of verse 7 says that she laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And that verse has spawned all kinds of ideas as to where Christ was actually born. Ancient tradition says that Christ was born in a cave. A cave made into a, a stable, a place where animals stayed and were sheltered. And that's a possibility because Bethlehem had, had all kinds of little pockets in the hillside, little caves, indentations in the hillside, and they would oftentimes build their houses or their barns around these indentations. And so tradition says that that's where he was been born. He has, was born, and it's possible. You can go to Bethlehem today, and there's a church of the nativity you can go down into it and you can see down in the lower levels of that church uh, an actual cave which they say is the place that Christ was born. We don't know for sure. Perhaps the most common understanding of this account is that they went to an inn. And that's the way this word is translated in this version. They went to an inn, but you'll find it curious to note that it's actually the word inn in the Greek language. There is another word for inn and innkeeper. And oh, by the way, there's no mention of an innkeeper. So sorry to mess your Christmas stories up. There was no mention of an innkeeper. And we're not even actually sure it was an inn like you think of an inn. And the reason for that is because there's another word that actually refers to a specific inn and an innkeeper. And Luke knew that word. And the reason we know he knows that word is because over in Luke chapter 10... Luke records the words of Christ about the Good Samaritan. And remember the Good Samaritan came along a man who was, who was injured and he brought him to an inn and that man there, the innkeeper, took care of him. That's the word pandokeon and pandoke. 
There was a word in the Greek language to refer to a specific inn and a specific innkeeper, but that's not the word that Luke uses here. It's the word kataluma. And the word kataluma is translated also in the Scriptures, and Luke knew this word because it's recorded in Luke chapter 22, verse 11, when he records the words of Christ where his disciples went out and asked, where is the guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And that word guest room, which is now known as the upper room, is the same word, kataluma. And so the best we can piece together is the place that Mary and Joseph lived or stayed in Bethlehem was some sort of guest house, perhaps an actual residence of people that lived there, probably not a typical inn as we would think of an inn, but an actual house with an upper level where there was places for guests to stay and a lower level where the people lived and had their meals and they conducted their normal affairs in the lower level. And in the part of that lower level, we know because excavations have taken place of some of these houses in that area and archaeologists have seen that there's an upper level where the guests would stay and a lower level where the family would stay. And a part of that lower level was a place where the animals would be brought in at night to keep them warm, to keep them safe, to keep them protected from robbers and thieves. Perhaps Mary and Joseph went to the home of a relative, or maybe not. Perhaps they just went to a home of someone that they could hopefully find a place to stay, and certainly some people in that city would have taken them in because of her condition. She was nine months pregnant. We can't imagine that anyone would force them out onto the streets, so they most likely were taken in, but the guest room was full. The upper level was full. So most likely, Mary and Joseph stayed in the lower level and the lower part of the lower level where the animals would have been stabled for the night in the straw. This is where the manger comes in, verse 7, and she laid him in a manger, literally a feeding trough. As those animals would be brought into their home at night, there was a place for them to eat. It was in that place that Mary placed Christ. We don't know exactly how long they were there before this took place, probably a matter of days. We don't know if they went to register first and and then they had Christ or if they had Christ first and then they registered. We're not entirely sure, but we do know that they stayed there for that time in Bethlehem in order for the days to be completed for Christ to be born. Read the verses again, verse 6, and while they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Wouldn't you like some more details? How did that happen? Were they alone? At night? You wonder if Joseph was doing all he could to help his pregnant bride. No hospitals, no nurses, no clean hospital room. Mom wasn't even there. Just a 15-year-old little boy to help the Savior of the world be born. Luke records it with great simplicity. With one final push, Mary gave birth to Jesus Christ. Six to eight pounds, 20, 21 inches long, came into the world just like any other baby 
came into the world. Born in a stable, amongst the animals, amongst the camels, the donkeys, the cows, the sheep. Born amongst the smell, the filth. And I wonder, is that an apt picture of what Christ came to do? Born amongst the filth of a stable, born amongst the smells, entering this world to save sinners who smelled and reeked of sin. Verse 7, she says, says that she gave birth to her firstborn son, implying she had other children. She was not a perpetual virgin after this, and she did not just have one child, as many believe. No, she had many more children, many brothers and sisters to Christ were born to her. And verse 7 says that she wrapped him in cloths. She swaddled him to keep him warm, to keep him safe, to protect him. And with that very simple description, Luke records for us the entrance of Jesus Christ into this world. And I'm shocked by the simplicity of this account. I'm amazed that it doesn't give any indication that really anyone else knew about this. No one in Bethlehem maybe even knew. No one in Jerusalem knew. Christ entered this world without any fanfare, without any celebrations, without any elaborate scene. He just humbly entered this world. Born to two simple teenagers. A man who came ultimately to be our Savior and to be our Lord. It's this that we want to celebrate. It's this that we want to remember. And it's this that we want to color our hearts and our minds and our affections this time of year. Father, there's something refreshing. There is something incredibly joyful about hearing about this uncluttered, unembellished account of the arrival of Christ into this world. We're amazed at the simplicity of it. We're amazed at the humble circumstances in which Christ came. The King of the world came quietly without any recognition through the simple means of a godly young couple ultimately to save and to bring to himself sinners who were lost in their depravity And we thank you and praise you for the incredible grace that you've bestowed upon us and for the humility of Christ in becoming a man who would then go to the cross and become our Savior. It's in his precious name we pray. Amen.